dive back into our study of 1st through 3rd John and chapter 4, as we can tell, be discerning uh, is the idea. In 1848, a guy named James Marshall discovered something life-changing in California, and it was gold. Uh, He never capitalized on it. Actually, he was building a mill, found the gold, never made anything of it, but he was soon followed by a host of 49ers, and I'm not talking about football fans here. I'm talking about their namesake, who did come in and discover that same life-altering precious metal and were instantly, many of them, rich and living the high life There Now, everything that glitters, though, is not gold. Uh, Prospectors soon learned that certain gold specks uh, were completely worthless. Iron pyrite, or as many called it, fool's gold. And you better know the difference if you were a prospector. Sometimes you could look at it, you could tell that this was not it, but often it wasn't as clear. So these miners developed some tests. One was to bite into what you thought was gold. Gold is softer than your tooth. Fool's gold is harder than your tooth. And so if you bit into fool's gold, not only did you have no money, but you had no teeth left either. Uh, So I guess that test was for the, the, I guess, tough mouth people. I don't know. Uh, Or they would take what they found and scrape it on a white stone because gold leaves a golden streak, but fool's gold leaves a greenish black one. But no matter how you figured it out as a gold prospector, you needed to know what was real and what was fake. You were staking your future on that and you couldn't leave it up to chance. In all reality, if you were a real prospector, it was assumed that you would have enough sense to know or test what you found to make sure it was the real deal. It was assumed that if you went out to pan for gold, if you staked your life on this, if you put all your money into this, that you would be able to walk in and at least have some way of knowing that what you found was real or what it was fake. And like those prospectors in California, believers are not supposed to be duped by what is fake, by what is a fool's gold doctrinally that doesn't just bring consequences for this life, it brings consequences for eternity. We're not supposed to get sucked into the thinking of false teachers or of this world. Instead, uh, we're called to test. And that's what verse 1 is saying. Beloved, and you notice with John, he, he always returns to these endearing words. And that is not just he's putting in there because he has nothing else to write. Uh, he writes that because he's trying to connect to them in a family way. He's not trying to be condescending or even preachy in that sense, but instead wants to convey to the church his affection for them, his concern for them. And so he writes, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Uh, Ephesians 4.14 calls us to be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive All of Scripture is filled with warnings about false teachers and the distortion of God's Word. The fact is, the first sin committed was perpetuated by believing false teaching. Satan, in his approach to Eve, cast doubt on what God said. He then outright denied the consequences of disobedience and then twisted the truth, painting the knowledge of good and evil as a positive. 
He sold Eve on the idea of breaking God's word, breaking God's truth, and what she would gain from sin, which we know what we gained from sin, which was being lost and separated from God and facing eternal death. But what he did was say, ah, you have some knowledge. He paints as positive a distortion of truth. And so Satan has continued constantly attacking truth with doubt, denial, and distortion. And the fact is we must test and be discerning. And why, you may ask, because as John makes clear, it is critical. Uh, MacArthur notes this, any ideology, philosophy, opinion, or religion other than God's truth fits Satan's agenda. And as Christians, we need to be discerning of that. Uh, we live in a day and age that, that, that is pressing in for us to accept anything but truth. So you have to be okay with anyone's distortion of truth. You have to be okay with my lifestyle. You have to be okay with what I think about the Bible. You have to be okay with what I think about God. You have to be okay with everything I say. And the reality is, anytime we compromise truth, we fit what Satan wants done. Uh, MacArthur continued, which is why it is so crucial for believers to recognize the difference between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And by the way, just as a note, John is letting us know that deception has a spirit behind it. Oftentimes we miss that, but it's not on accident. It is pushed by one or the other. Uh, if they fail to be discerning, Christians will not only be confused and unable to discern for themselves, but they will also be unable to accurately convey the truth to others. Uh, sadly, the original audience of John's letter were already entertaining false teaching. So he begins actually with a command to stop believing. He starts with this beloved, this connection to family, and then he says, believe not. And in Greek, the implications behind believe not is a command format. And the idea is you are believing and you need to stop doing this. So there's an idea of discontinuing. This isn't a warning to your kids saying, if you do this, you'll get in trouble. It's you're doing this and you are in trouble and you need to stop doing this. Uh, John is saying to the churches, stop believing lies. Stop being connected to this. Stop being enthralled. Stop giving an audience to what people are saying. And instead, start testing. Try the Spirit. So he, he's saying to them, stop doing what you are doing and start being discerning. Now, we right away look at that and, and we can apply a crit critiquing attitude. And I use a different word, be analytical. You need to analyze what is said. That doesn't mean you sit up and critique everything that's going on, but you analyze every word that is said. John implies here that, now we're, not, that we're not only capable of noticing what is true and what is not, but it is assumed that we will apply that knowledge, that we will be discerning. And that's the whole point of the illustration that I started with. If you prospected for gold in 1849, you had better know what was fake and what was real. And the same applies to a believer that's not saying I hope that someone who preaches knows what's fake and what's real. That's saying you are supposed to, as a believer, know what is fake and what is real. That God has equipped you to know that. Uh, we have the resources in hand. We just need to use them. A lot of times people say, well, I I'm going to get tricked. We don't have to get tricked. Everything funnels through Scripture. Uh, the Bereans in Acts 17.11 who it says were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind, which it means they weren't starting out with a critiquing spirit. But then I love the end and searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. 
So these are people who wanted to listen to God's truth, but they made sure that it was God's truth. Uh, I mentioned when I started out about reading scripture and, and I've heard a thousand different ways people try to encourage adults to read the Bible. And I know my approach is a little bit more confrontational about this, but I don't believe in telling you or trying to coax you to read five minutes of the Bible a day. As a believer, if you can't invest some time into reading God's word, then you need to examine your heart. You need to check what's wrong because something's wrong. Um, the Bereans could go to the scriptures and search them to see if it was so because they knew scripture, because they could go back to it. I'm not saying you memorize it. Uh, I always say this, when I'm preaching through a book of the Bible, I know that book very well. But when I'm done preaching through it, I, I have a hard time remembering things. I have to go back and read it over again to even know it. We're not memorizing everything, but we do know our scriptures. And that's what we've been equipped with. We've been given God's word so we can discern. And, and John is making it, it kind of right there in our face. Stop believing and test. And the idea is you, you can do this. You've been enabled to do this as a believer. You can know what is right and what's wrong. We're commanded to stop being swayed and influenced by lies and instead test the spirits. Analyze what is said based on the truth of God's word. And we cannot drop our guard because he says many false prophets are gone out into the world. We have to recognize not only is it critical, it's necessary. We must be discerning because there will be no end to the false teachers and deceivers. If there were many then, there's certainly no less now. I, I did a little research I want to preface this. I was online research, so this is the computer. You know, it's Google. It was Wikipedia, so let's see if they were right. In 100 AD, the estimate that they give was that there was 200 million people in the world. As close as they can tell right now, today, there's 7.75 billion people now. So if John says there's many false prophets in the world... And he's roughly around 100 AD, so there's a lot of false prophets at 200 million people. That is less than 3% of our current population. Now, I would say truth has permeated the world, and so maybe that's limited false teaching, but I just want us to realize that if 3% of the population included many false prophets, then I would say 97% more people are going to have a lot of false teachers available to listen to, and let's be honest, every false teacher today has a broader circulation than ever before. They can get online. They can, first it was blogging, now there's videos. Now You can do anything. If, if you're looking up how to, to do anything in the world, if Theron's trying to research the sound equipment, he doesn't look to the manual anymore. He goes to YouTube to find somebody who can tell them how to do it right. The reality is this, and I'm trying to make the point very clear. If there was 200 million people with many false prophets at 7.75 billion with all the circulation they can have, false teaching is going to take place. And they're out there and they're propagating their message. We cannot drop our guard. We must remain vigilant. There is no time in our existence on earth here that there will not be false teaching. We may not have as many false teachers surrounding us. We may be reading the right things, but the reality is this, false teaching is out there and we must be vigilant. And John, the apostle, wants the church to wake up to reality. 
They're sitting there in church and they're letting people come and teach who are not teaching truth. They're not discerning that they're not teaching truth. They're giving them an audience and they're giving them influence and they're a soft sell. They're easy. And he's saying, stop being that way. He's crying out to them because they're approaching a dangerous cliff and are acting like they're unaware of the situation. And he's screaming to them and saying, you're at the cliff's edge. Stop doing that. Back off the edge. Move back. They and we need to see that this is critical and it's not something to be casual about. The fact is false teaching is going to take place and biblical discernment by all believers will be a constant necessity. At no time can you check your discernment at the door. At no time can you just say, I'm fine. I'm just going to list into nothingness. I don't need to engage my mind. You will always need to be thinking as a believer which should have us wondering this, do we exercise constant discernment? Are we vigilant? Do we think it is necessary? Look, God has equipped you to be discerning and expects you to exercise that discernment daily and in every area of life. You might say, well, I'm going to make sure what Kenny says is right. You should. You should check the scriptures. But you need to make sure what you hear from another believer is right. You got to make sure that the blog you read is right. You got to make sure the preacher you listen to on the radio is right. You got to make sure when you're listening to a show and a guy is philosophical and seems religious or a woman, and you think that sounds neat and that's tickling your ears, that you're being discerning. You cannot drop your guard ever. You must apply scriptural discernment to every area of life. But he doesn't leave us now wondering about how to go about discernment. He doesn't say, be discerning and figure it out on your own. Instead, he does give us an operational manual on this. There, through the Apostle John, we're given the clear criteria of the test, and that's two through six. He says, hereby know ye the Spirit of God. And again, he's tying in. Don't miss this. We're going to test to know the spirit of error and the spirit of truth. He's showing you that it's deeper than just this person speaking, that there is an agenda, a spiritual warfare behind it that's propagating it, that anything against God's truth is propagated by the, the great father of lies, by Satan. And so we're confronting that. How do you know when something's from God? Hereby know you the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. This is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. And then he goes, Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are of the world. Therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. I'm going to say this. I won't probably say it again, but if you're listening, you say, wow, that seems far-fetched or that seems dogmatic. I don't know if I can listen to that. Well, that's because you're not one of us. I say that bluntly because you want to be confronted with that. When you hear scriptural truth and it bothers you in a way that you don't want to believe it, that's an indication of your heart and where you are. It it drives us to see the criteria of the test makes distinctions, and we're called to test based on the distinctions that God has given. This is not based on our emotions about the subject or our personal experience with a certain teaching. I hear people say, well, I... I listened to that guy and I really liked him. Well, if he's preaching wrong, then stop liking him. It's not based 
on your emotions. It's not based on your personal experience. It's not based on the culture of the day and what they find acceptable or promotable, nor is it based on our relationship with the teacher. The criteria of the test is based completely on God's standard as found in his word. We need to see something about this test. It is theological. It deals with doctrine. It gets specific about your view of Jesus Christ, who, by the way, is the central person of the whole conversation, the whole argument. So in exercising discernment, we're going to test two things. And the first one is test the message. Test the message. John gives or gave intricate detail here. I don't know if you remember, it's been many weeks that I talked about this, but there was a false teacher with a doctrine that Christ, the divine, came upon Jesus, the man, at baptism and left him at crucifixion. This is one of the teachings. The Gnostics would talk about this. It's woven in the fabric that, that Christ, God, didn't die on a cross, nor was he born as a baby but that he indwelt somebody for a period of time. Thus, Jesus, who we know, who was born in a stable and died on a cross, that was a person and that the Messiah indwelt him for a period of time. John gets very detailed here. This is what people are pushing out. And by the way, we live in a day and age that doesn't see Christ as divine either. The age old He's mythological. He was a big liar. He was a great prophet. He was a good man. He gave his life for his cause. All of those things happen, but what do they deny? They deny that he's Christ, that he is divine, that he's the son of God, and that he came and died for our sins. So the error, though painted a different way, looks similar as what this gentleman was saying, that Jesus was a man that died as a man and didn't have any redemptive qualities to him at all. John refutes that with a very precise statement. Christ did not come into the flesh of Jesus, but instead Jesus was the Christ come in the flesh. And Greek is even more precise than English. It makes it abundantly clear that there was no indwelling at some point and an exiting. It makes it very clear that God became man. That's what John's saying. And what we're driving to and understanding is, is note that that precision is noteworthy. It's important because it leaves no room for the sloppy handling of truth of doctrine. There are not multiple versions of Jesus and you pick your favorite edition. I see that over and over again. Well, the Jesus I worship is, the Jesus I know is, and I'm going to say this with all the kindness in my heart, it doesn't matter what Jesus you think you worship. You only worship Christ when you worship the one that's presented in Scripture There is one true Jesus Christ, and we're called to believe everything about him. Because scripture is specific about who Jesus is and specifically says one must believe on him completely uh, to be saved. There are not multiple paths to heaven. Every monotheistic religion or view, and by the way, monotheistic means one God view, So that would be Judaism, that would be Christianity, that would be Muslims. It's not worshiping the same God, and it's not correctly worshiping the same God. Scripture is very clear that it's not the case. Worship of the true God is linked to worship of Jesus Christ. Uh, For instance, Luke 10, 16 says, He that heareth you, heareth me. And he that despiseth you, despiseth me. And he that despiseth me, despiseth him that 
sent me. John 14, 6, John is speaking to Thomas saying this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. The apostle John is actually the one that's most emphatic about this. He repeats it over and over again. Earlier in this letter, John stated uh, emphatically, who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. And John, who is the softest writing musical movement through his letter, beloved and brethren and little children and constantly words of endearment tied in, becomes very harsh almost when it comes to this idea of confronting them. Who is a liar, he says? Someone who twists anything about Christ. And he links it again to that spirit of antichrist. We talked about that. And when we talk about, again, the spirit of error, we're talking about it has satanic principles behind it. When you preach a lie, it is powered by deception and the father of deception. The point is, we need to pay attention to what is being said and specifically what is said about Jesus and who he is and the work that he has accomplished. I'm going to come back to what I said. The test is theological and to me, more specific, Christological. And those are big words to say it's about Jesus. It is the doctrine, it is the deep things, it is the critical components. You cannot bend on this. So as you find people manipulating an attribute of Christ and making that their only attribute, as they try to change what he said about other things, recognize that truth is found in believing the complete Jesus, not a part of him. There is no room for variance concerning the subject of our Savior It is not about the Jesus you worship being, and I put fill in the blank, right? Well, the Jesus I worship is a God of love. He doesn't judge anyone. He doesn't, well, no, that's not the Jesus that's found in Scripture. It is about the Jesus clearly presented in the Bible to whom we are called to submit and believe. We do not define him and his work nor his requirements. We trust him and literally take him at his word no matter how confrontational it is to our world. And then I say this, no matter how confrontational it is to our own emotions and experiences. Because we can pretend like it's the world's fault that we believe a certain way, but it's really our fault that we believe a certain way. Because when Christ confronts how I feel about something, then I push back on Christ and say, well, that can't be true. I need to reinterpret that. I need to reapply this scripture because it confronts how I know things. And, and John is pushing back and saying, you have to be aligned with the standard that God gives us. We must test the message against the truth of God's word. This takes us back to how the Bereans responded. They heard teaching and went to the correct source, uh, the correct standard to evaluate that teaching. So ask yourself this, are we testing the message we hear by the standard of God's word? Or is a message tested by the whims of our experience, emotions, or desires? And be honest with yourself. Do you test by God's word or do you allow yourself and your emotions and your desires and your experiences and your life to be woven into that test and then we we come up with our solution? Uh, When we test by the standard of us, we are doomed to deception. And that's a reality we all have to know. When the standard is us, we are doomed to deception. Now, along with the test of the message There's also a call to test the audience. That's verses four through six. Let me reread those. 
He states very emphatically, ye are of God, little children. Again, that endearing term, you're, you're God's children and have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Greater is the Holy Spirit that indwells you than the spirit that empowers the world and its deception. He makes that confident statement, which is just another reminder that we're capable and enabled to overcome deception. They are of the world, therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now we're looking at who is listening and to what do they listen John begins this discussion by affirming who the true church is and to whom they are connected. Believers are God's children and do not need to fear that these false teachers will be able to overwhelm them. I know one of the biggest fears I have, if I pick a book up and I don't know the background of the author and I'm reading it, my biggest fear is that I'm going to be duped, that someone's going to trick me into something. And the reality is, John says, you won't be tricked as long as you apply scriptural principles to that. So when you read something, no matter how much it appeals to you, no matter how emotional it is, and we say, this connects to me, this, this speaks to who I am. Well, make sure it speaks to the standard of scripture before you're embracing something that appeals to you. As verse 4 makes clear, our confidence rests not in our intellect, but instead in the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. We again hear confirmation of God's enabling so that we are not deceived. That, of course, is contrasted by those of the world who speak to and listen to false teaching, as that is the message they desire to hear, which leads us to John's call to test the audience, because a lot is learned and discerned from the audience and their response. I just have two audiences here. The world speaks to itself and listens to itself. That's what he says in verse 5. The world speaks to itself and it listens to itself. They belong to the world. And by world, he means the unbelievers, the lost. He's not just talking about people who are philosophically uh, in error or people who are scientifically in error or people, whatever it may be, historically in error. He's not just talking about people who speak lies, but people who believe them. So when he says the world, he's speaking to those who don't know Christ as their personal savior. And he says they buy into the world's message. Aiken states this as a commentator. He says, We should never be surprised when the lost think like lost people and live like lost people. Those enslaved to the world cannot help but listen to those who speak their own language. And I think that's a helpful analogy. Why does the world listen to lies? Because that's the language they speak. They listen, and I'm going to throw out a language. We'll just pick on English. They listen to English because English is what they know. They don't know another language. The believer, we'll do Spanish here, listens to Spanish because that's the language they speak and they hear it. Don't be surprised when the world listens to someone speaking English. Don't get it confused too much in your mind because that's the language they know and they're going to listen to what they know. The opposite is true of God's children. God speaks to the church through his word and the church listens to to him. I'm going to say this again. If you don't listen to God's word, then take the test in reverse. If God speaks to the church and the church listens to him, but you don't listen to him, then you're not part of the church. And by church, I don't mean a building and people here on Sunday. I'm talking about the church, the body of Christ 
his beloved who he's redeemed. So if you don't listen to God's word, then the likelihood is that you don't belong to him because God speaks to his own through his word and his own listen to him. We belong to God and therefore we buy into his message. When John mentions us, he is linking to the apostles and directly to the work of the Holy Spirit upon them to write God's message. When he says that us, he's not speaking in this general format. He's being very specific, us. I'm an apostle and us, the other apostles, as as God is giving his written word through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's saying, this is who you listen to. Believers take God at his word. That is a telling characteristic of being his child. How do you know you belong to God? Because you obey God. You're not earning the right to be his child. It is a test that you are his child. You will obey if you are his child. If you are not his child, then you speak a different language and you listen to people from that language. You might be pretending to listen to the language over here, but really you listen to this one because it's all the language you understand. And so he's being very clear. If you're going to be God's child, then you will listen to what God says. We trust that what God says, regardless of our feelings, experiences, desires, is true. I'm going to take out all the other ones. We trust that what God says is true. It is not a blind or gullible faith. Instead, it is knowing that what he says is true, no matter what seems to be true to us or the world. No matter what the world is talking about, no matter what they're emotional about, no matter how much they're going to cancel somebody that that doesn't do what they want them to do, and I'm not going to get into details, but it doesn't matter what the world says. Let me say this. It doesn't matter what it seems like to you. If you're going to listen to God, then even if something seems a certain way to you, if it contradicts what God says, you believe God. And that's not gullibility. That's being able to overcome your sin nature, your brokenness. It is recognizing that he brings discernment. It is tying in with, with Paul, Romans 3, 4. It says, let God be true but every man a liar. That's not saying, well, I don't have any brains. It's saying, I trust God's infinite intellect and mind as he's given it here over anything that I may have. I listened to an um, a interview of a famous guy, super intelligent individual. Um, and what was fascinating to me is the interview was done by a group of people that, that claim Christ. And so they're talking, so that topic comes up. And the way he talked about God and faith was fascinating because he was smarter than God and you could see it in his mind, but he didn't want to say it. And you watch a supreme intellect that says, I can discern more than God. And he would have to subject his mind to it. And he's obviously brilliant. But his brilliance brought arrogance and pride that doesn't allow him to see God's truth and believe God even when his brain says something different. Why? Because his brain is his God. And if we're going to be God's children, we understand let God be true, but every man a liar. I'm going to give us an exaggerated hypothetical illustration or question to make that point. Some of you who've talked with me have heard this before, so you know where it goes. But I want you to see what I mean in in an illustration that's not real. So if you look outside, and if you did, the sky looks blue. But what if the Bible said the sky is green? What color is the sky? 
And I want to confront our own senses because it's hard to overcome looking out and seeing blue, right? It looks blue. It seems that way. I want to use this now. Your answer, if this circumstance were real, and it is not, there's no verse in the Bible that says, behold, the sky is blue. I mean, it's green and you need to believe otherwise. But I want you to realize this. If this circumstance was true, you would say that the sky would be green because you trust God's word over your senses and perception. If scripture was ever that clear about the sky, then we know what the sky's color is. But if you said, I can't do that, right? I know right away what your brain thinks. This is a dumb and blind faith. I don't believe that way. And see, that's the world's analogy of it. When we say we know it's true because God said it's true, and they'll come back and say, prove it true. Every one of us is looking up and it looks blue. And we say, we know it's true because God said it's green. Who do you ultimately trust? Who has the authority? Who has the say about what is right? And I want to say this because I know the accusation comes up even in our own heart. Uh, This is not a dumb and blind faith. It is a trust in God that is stronger than my own take on it. Is God's truth stronger than your truth in the way that our world uses the word truth? The right word, of tr- there's only one thing that's true, so I'm, I'm mixing and blending here a little bit. But is your take stronger than God's take? If God says something, is that what it is? Or does it have to funnel through you? Or instead, do you funnel through it? And John is, is driving to something because his point is that they need to be discerning. But he gives the criteria of discernment. He says that you're going to listen to God and take him at his word. We are capable to discern because we'll go to scripture and we will get our answer from his word and not from our own perception. I'm not saying you should check your brain at the door that you don't use your intellect to read his word, to study his word, to interpret his word, to apply his word. But as John has made clear, you don't get to mix and match this. You're either going to trust in God or you're going to trust in self. We are known by who we listen to, either the world or the Savior. John ends with that, hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So ask yourself this, who are you listening to? Who am I listening to? Let me combine a bit of the testing of the message and the testing of the audience with a thought question on the message that we preach with our lives and voices and how our audience responds. And this is just a thought to think about if our corrupt, sinful culture, which resists and hates the true God and his authority, if that culture likes our message without being confronted by it, changing because of it, repenting, or even resisting it, if the world likes our message with no response of change, no confrontation, no resistance, nothing, how polluted has our message become? I know constantly the accusation is hurled out. And again, this is not to be odious for odious sake. There's not to be um, a difficult personality, to be nasty to people just so you can, well, good, that's a nasty message. They responded to it. It's not how we deliver the message because we deliver it uh, in love. Truth in love is how we're called to do it. But a world that hates God should not be just fine with what you say about God If you're saying what God has said about himself, it will confront them. 
It will change them. It will bring about repentance in them. It will be used by the Holy Spirit or they're going to resist it. And if they don't, how polluted has our message become? And then I put another question, and should we be bothered or worried about it? We're called to be discerning. And it's not something that any believer can afford to neglect. As John made perfectly clear, there are many false prophets gone out into the world. It is critically necessary that we be discerning. Uh, But sadly, the church has already, and this church was already being duped, and we have no business being deceived. That's John's other point. You have what you need to not be duped. Don't be duped. Apply what you're supposed to apply. It's critically necessary that we be discerning. We've been equipped as God's children to know what is truth, and he has, through John, given us a simple criteria. Test the message and test the audience. Test what is said. Test who is listening to it. We preach Christ as revealed clearly and completely in his word. We know that can bring ridicule or persecution, but we're not to tweak or adjust his word for any reason. And I put in parentheses, even when that reasoning comes from within. The strongest pressure to change the message will not be the world pressing in on you, but you pressing in on you. You wanting to be like the world. You wanting to fit in. You wanting to be accepted. You wanting to not be confronted about your own sin. It will be you that wants to change the message. We love to blame the world, but it's our desire for the world's praise, accolades, acceptance, ease, whatever it may be, that drives us. And so we preach Christ whether or not the world ridicules or persecutes us. As 1 Corinthians 1, 20 through 25 states, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? That's verse 20. So as you listen to these bright minds, be sarcastic about God. Don't let that throw you off because God says to that person, that he's made foolish the wisdom of this world. They may not know it today, but they will know it. He goes on, For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. The world will not think their way to God. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. We preach Christ. We believe him. So test the message and test the audience to see if it aligns with God's truth. But I want to close with phrasing it a little more personally for us. Make sure that you test your message and your audience as well, to make sure you align with God's truth. Be discerning of what is taught, and be discerning of what you are teaching with both your words and your life. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to come together on the Lord's Day and worship you and celebrate uh, what you've done for us, recognizing that there's life found only in you. I hope that we can all be discerning believers that knowing that we're your children, that we listen to your word, that we can overcome our own emotions and our own experiences, our own desires, and instead submit those to the wisdom of your word, to trust you literally in everything that you say. 
And when our own hearts rise up to speak or, or change what Scripture says, I hope that we'll be confronted, that our message will change to align with your message, that our desires will be conformed to your desires. Help us to be a discerning church, to speak the truth in love, to preach it out there, uh, but to not change your message at all. Be clear, be fresh, be loving, but preach Christ and him crucified to a world that needs to hear that Christ came and died on the cross for their sins. In your precious and holy name, amen.